0: The RetroGasmic Podcast is brought to you by Rosemary.NZ, a one-woman business that designs and makes beautiful hot rod rock and roll and kiwi themed men's shirts. Hop onto Rosemary.NZ and see the vast selection of fabric choices and designs. That's Rosemary.NZ. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over
1: the northern Atlantic. Once a normal, voluptuously beautiful woman, she drove into a nightmare of horror and saw descending from the sky. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening.
0: I feel retrogasmic.
1: Retrogasmic.
2: Retrogasmic. And
0: welcome, welcome, welcome to the Retrogasmic podcast. I am your host, Dee Dee Deluxe, and today we are on part two of our Jerry and Sylvia Anderson special. Last show we looked at Stingray and uh, Supercar and some of the earlier stuff, and today we're going to be looking at Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet and Joe Ninety. (laughs) There are very few pieces of music that generate such a nostalgic reaction in me. I remember that coming on when I was a kid and just being excited watching the opening credits and listening to that music. So Thunderbirds ran for two series, that's all. Um, It was massively successful. But for some reason, the, uh, after they completed the second series, Lou Grade, who was the, uh, Anderson's financial backer, couldn't find uh, an American network that would take it on. And it just got cancelled. Absolute insanity. They made um, 32 50-minute episodes, and it was set in the mid-2060s again. That For some reason, the Andersons liked that uh, 2060 date. Be interesting to see when we actually get to 2060 whether or not there are flying cars
2: who knows i had pretty well finished Dingray. i had the inevitable call from lou to say can you come up tomorrow morning i want to hear what you've got in line for me for the next show but about three weeks before that happened there was a mine in germany which comprised a central shaft which went down some incredible depth and then every so often there was a gallery going this way and that way and this way along which miners were hewing hewing coal and it's difficult to believe but the mine was actually under a lake and one day the bottom of the lake fell out and the mine was flooded. Miners were trapped underground and a long way underground And so the story was on every news bulletin for about three weeks. And first of all, the mining engineers decided where the miners, or some of the miners, would probably be in an air pocket. So they drilled a small hole down and they found some miners down there. They dropped a microphone down and they were able to talk to the miners, but they couldn't get them out. And then the rescue crews decided that they have to drill a large bore hole, big enough to hoist a man up. And the only drill available at that time was in Bremen, in Germany. And they put it on a train, but it was going to take eight hours to get to the mine. In the meantime, this disaster was unfolding. Would the miners live, or wouldn't they? They then drilled this hole all the way down, and that took a long time. And they also built a capsule so that a man could stand in the steel capsule and be hoisted to the surface. And in that way, they pulled out, I think as far as I can remember, about 27 miners. And of course, it was a very moving story. Many of the men died, naturally. And the thing that did it for me was they've located the miners, they're trapped under there, and the only way you can get them out is to drill a big, borehole, but the only machine capable of it is eight hours away. So I started thinking there ought to be rescue equipment, you know, dumped all over the place so that, you know, anyway, I went to see Lou and on the way up, I was obviously thinking about what I was going to say, but I knew that to do these sort of rescues would be enormously expensive. So I went into Lou, used a cigar, coffee, you know, the whole works. And he sat down. And he said, "Right, what's next series, Jerry?" So I said, "Look, Lou, um, I have got an idea for a new series, but I'm not sure that you'd want to back this one." He leapt out of his desk and he strided round the desk, and he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, and he dragged me into the centre of the office. I, I mean, I. Didn't know what he was going to do. And he said, look, can you see that light bulb up there? And I said, yes. He said, Jerry, if you want to make a series about that light bulb, I'll back you. Now, can you imagine what that did to me emotionally? I nearly cried. So we sat down, lit up our cigars, and I told him roughly what it was going to be. It was going to be called International Rescue. And he said... Sounds good. Go ahead. And so we embarked on the most difficult and most costly series I've ever made.
0: I'm sure I don't have to tell most of you that Thunderbirds followed the adventures of International Rescue, uh, which was basically the Tracy family. Jeff Tracy, the father, was kind of the top dog, uh, ex-astronaut, and his five adult sons all had their own Thunderbird kind of spacecraft, each with their own speciality. The most famous of which I suspect was Thunderbird 2 that uh, cleverly had a a pod in the middle of it which allowed it to to take a number of different um, bits of equipment to various rescues including Thunderbird's 4 which was the underwater submarine rescue machine. Uh, the famous uh, introductory music with the uh, five, four, etc., etc., countdown was voiced by Peter Dinely, who also did the father Jeff Tracy's voice within the series. The five boys, Scott, Virgil, Alan, Gordon and John, were actually named after five of the seven American astronauts that had uh, already been into space. So there was a kind of a link with real life.
1: M- Mr. Tracy is usually based well, at headquarters. Tracy, but when he and I went to check to out a new monorail system, them. we found ourselves in real danger. Tracy, something's gone wrong. We're heading for trouble. And I mean trouble. The train hadn't been properly tested. We were running at full speed with no driver and no brakes. I'm going to call the boys. It's too late. I realise that. But if you fail, we might need help after the crash. If we survive, how are you going to call them without Gravda knowing that we're International Rescue? Leave it to me.
0: Another of the major characters was, of course, the stuttering Boffin Brains, voiced by TV actor David Graham. The, uh, the the look and feel of the character apparently was based on the American actor Anthony Perkins of uh, Psycho fame. Now, of course, we come to the lovely Lady Penelope Crichton-Ward, who was the Thunderbird's London-based field agent, and her loyal sidekick and butler and chauffeur Parker.
1: Say, Dad. Penny's over in Delhi right now. What say we give her a call and ask her to investigate? Good idea, Scott. This should be just Penny's cup of tea. Well, I must say, Parker, it was a good idea of yours to bring Fab One along. So much more convenient. Yes, belady. The hair conditioning is working a treat, don't you think? In this heat, it's a jolly good thing that it is. Oh, my compact. Hi, Penny. You may think this kind of strange, but we've been getting reports from the Everest area about this so-called abominable snowman which seems to be terrorizing the local people. Do go on, Jeff. I'm intrigued. I thought maybe you could go up and do a little investigating. But of course, Jeff. I'd adore to go up to the mountains. I missed winter sports this year. And I'd love to see a snowman, abominable or otherwise.
0: So the Lady Penelope puppet was, of course, based on uh, Sylvia Anderson, and she also did the voice. She became a bit, of a, a, a bit of a style icon. All of her clothing and her kind of handbags and accessories were all based on contemporary, or mid-60s, contemporary then, Carnaby Street and Parisian fashions, and they often used to reference Vogue and Harper's magazines to make sure that whatever Lady Penelope was wearing was, was up to date. Which, uh, considering it was based in 2060, would make her extremely retro. Which is why we love her! <laughs> so, Parker. He's employed by Lady Penelope at the Crichton Ward Mansion and he serves as her butler and chauffeur driving FAB1, the uh, wonderful modified six-wheeled Rolls-Royce. He's an international field agent and born in London, he speaks in a heavy Cockney accent, which, uh, speaking as a Cockney, his accent was absolutely terrible. He was voiced by David, David Graham, who did Brains' voice, of course, or Lady Penelope was always trying to get him to speak properly. Yes, my lady. Or oh, yes, my lady. There's a couple of episodes where he is required to break into safes quite conveniently. Um, and there's a few episodes where you kind of get an insight into his uh, slightly unsavoury past. But all in all, he's a great character and uh, adds a lot to the fun of the show. Ooh, I feel retrogasmic.
1: The Mysterons, sworn enemies of Earth, possessing the ability to recreate an exact likeness of an object or person. But first, they must destroy. the fight, one man fate has made indestructible, his name, Captain Scarlet,
0: so next up, Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons, the Captain Starlet series presents the hostilities between Earth and a race of Martians known as the Mysterons, after human astronauts attack their city. On Mars due to a complete mistake, which is you know easily done of course. The Mysterons declare war on Earth and then every episode was basically the Mysterons turning up, trying to do terrible things, and Spectrum, who was the kind of the Earth security organization coming to the rescue, led by the indestructible Captain Scarlet. This was very, very dark compared to the other series. Um, when I was a kid I remember watching this and it was fascinating, and the puppets and the, uh, the the you know the special effects were wonderful, but it was definitely a little bit disturbing. Um, there was a weird kind of uh, binocular-shaped light that would pass over things that was never really explained, and then this really deep voice would announce something terrible was going to happen, and then it would be up to the good guys to try and stop it. Very very strange stuff. The 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 kind of leading baddie was Captain Black. And I never really understood why he was kind of a consistent character. I, I got that he was one of the good guys that had basically died and then come back to life as a, an evil Martian agent. But why they didn't just use someone nearby and more convenient rather than the same guy each time was never really under, uh, explained.
1: This is the voice of the Mr. Runs. We know that you can hear us, Earthmen. You attacked our complex.
0: Um, Captain Scarlet got a a bit of criticism later on for having uh, not quite as good puppetry and and for some of the detail not to be as uh, in-depth as in Thunderbirds but um, overall it was very, very popular and uh, generally regarded to be another another great Anderson production. Um, A few firsts, they had um, a multiracial cast which was pretty cool for the time and probably the sexiest puppets that have ever existed the angels that were female fighter pilots there was symphony angel rhapsody angel melody angel and harmony angel Uh, sylvia anderson did the voice of melody angel and um, yeah it was it was cool for girls at that time to have kind of strong leading roles even if they were puppets
1: Rhapsody has just landed. Mm, we are off-duty symphony. Oh, lead me to that room of sleep. Yeah. This four hours on, four hours off is sure tiring. Ah, where are Melody and Harmony? I guess they're still changing. Hello, girls. What's the news? Hi, Rhapsody. Hello, Rhapsody. No news. Things are very quiet. Well, with Colonel White, Captain Blue and Captain Scarlet away, I hope they stay quiet.
0: They made 32 episodes uh, at a cost of one and a half million pounds, which works out about £46,000 per episode or £2,000 per minute, which at the time was the most expensive Anderson production to date. So, hypothetically, if you had a nine-year-old son and you had a huge machine in your basement that could transfer knowledge into a human brain, would you let said nine-year-old son become a secret agent and go off and do life-threatening things when he should be at school and playing football? No? Yeah, well, you weren't Joe 90's dad. So, Joe Ninety, uh, The Kid, James Bond. It came for, uh, in for a bit of criticism because there's hardly any female characters in the cast. And it's very kind of uh, young boy, male oriented. And some of the shows were actually quite violent. Oh, I know it's a kid show and it's a you know, basically puppets. But some of the stuff that happened was actually quite violent. And it did get a bit of criticism at the time. So the basic premise is that nine year old British schoolboy Joe McLean is the adopted son of Professor Ian Mack McLean, who's a kind of a computer boffin and uh, they're meant to be the normal father and son and they live in a lovely kind of old school Elizabethan style cottage overlooking the bay in I think it's Devon or Dorset and they've got the lovely housekeeper Mrs Harris and down in the basement it's always down in the basement isn't it they've got this secret underground lab um, where Mac's latest invention the big rat is uh, like a big spinning disc thing that's capable of recording knowledge and experience from people and then transferring it into other people's heads and somehow, some other secret agent dude persuades him to let his nine-year-old son have various experts' knowledge put into his head, and then off he goes with his suitcase that has a special gun in it, and Lord knows what else. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's the small boy's secret agent dream, I guess. But if you apply a better logic to it, it's actually a, a little bit warped.
1: Ah uh, Joe, good. Now we can begin. Is this it, Dad? This is it. You know what to do. Now, Sam, I have recorded my brain patterns on that reel of tape. So, electronically, it now stores my knowledge and my experience. In a moment, I'm going to transfer that knowledge and experience to little Joe. Okay, Dad. I'm ready. Relax, Joe. Don't answer me, just relax. Relax completely.
0: So there's the usual high-tech gadgets. There's a there's a kind of cool flying car thing. Um, There's the uh, typical Anderson Cold War metaphor running through everything. Some of the baddies, if you like, uh, have got kind of Slavic or Russian accents, even though it's meant to be set in the future where there's like a a global government. In fact, I think one episode from memory, the uh, the president of the world gets kidnapped. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got lots going for it. Uh, the puppets and the special effects are superb. Um, it's a later Anderson show, so the the heads are much more in proportion, which is a bit kind of uh, easier to watch than the early ones where the, the heads kind of bobbled about like a dashboard ornament. So there were a few groundbreaking things with Joe Ninety. They did a Christmas-themed special episode called The Unorthodox Shepherd, which featured location filming, which uh, hadn't really been done before. And they also blended in real live actors in long shot with the close-ups of the puppets in scale to kind of add to the realism, which was was pretty clever. Now, we haven't really got a trivia for today. So what I'm going to do, here's one. The Big Rat, so the aforementioned spherical, noisy information and intelligence transfer machine that seems to be very handy for putting schoolboys in. The Big Rat is actually an acronym. What does it stand for? Now, you've got to be a real nerd if you know this one.
1: Mac, it's been a long interrogation, but I just want to ask Joe one more question. Okay, Sam. But then I think we will call it a day. Right, Mac. Now, Joe, we've been talking now for over an hour about the C-3400 computer. My last question, how many transistors are used in it? That's easy. None. Pulsed light beams and integrated circuits make them unnecessary. Oh, Mac, it's incredible. Just <laughs> incredible. Well, Sam, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a, a dream come true. How long will Joe retain all this knowledge? As soon as we remove the electrodes, he'll be back to normal.
0: So Jerry and Sylvia Anderson were married in November 1960, um, but by the time they were on tour promoting the feature film Thunderbirds Are Go in December 66, their marriage was already on the rocks. Uh, Apparently it was jealousy. Jerry thought Sylvia was kind of trying to take the limelight. They almost cancelled the tour, but they realised that it would be an absolute financial disaster, so they carried on. Um, by Christmas that year, they'd separated. Um, they kind of got back together again in, within a couple of months and went on holiday to Paris. But um, it was always a rocky, kind of tumultuous relationship. Um, when they were filming Space Ninety Nine, the live-action uh, science fiction show, uh, they were under a lot of stress and they were working very, very long hours. And the relationship got worse and worse and worse. And eventually, they uh, they were divorced in nineteen eighty one. Jerry tried to save the marriage. He bought a big posh, expensive house, but he didn't sell his other home first. And then the property market crashed, and it left him almost bankrupt to settle up in the divorce he had to sell most of his business interests and it left him in a real bad state and there was a a fairly nasty custody battle for their access to their son Jerry Anderson Jr and um, even though he won the rights to see him on the day of the proposed first visit Jerry got a letter written in his son's handwriting saying that he never wanted to see his dad again so Very, very sad, no matter what the stuff in the background, which I guess we'll never know. And it's not really our business, is it? It's always sad when a a family falls apart like that. So, yeah, they achieved a lot of greatness, but behind the scenes, not a happy family. So, our ad hoc Joe 90 vintage trivia question. What was BIG RAT an acronym for? What was BIG RAT an acronym for? Well, I think I should hand you over to the inventor himself. Mac?
1: There he is, Sam. The BIG RAT. The BIG RAT? The Brain Impulse Galvanoscope Record and Transfer.
0: There you go. From the horse's mouth. The BIG RAT is the brain, impulse, galvanoscope, record and transfer. You get that right in a pub quiz and you will impress the entire playground.
2: Ah, retrogasmic.
0: So once more, we'd like to say a huge thank you to our lovely sponsor, Rosemary.NZ. Hop over there, grab yourself a handmade retro bowling shirt. If you're listening on iTunes, we uh, we were just outside one of the charts the other day. So uh, please keep leaving lovely reviews. Uh, tell your friends, all that kind of stuff. We are going to leave you with another piece of music by the genius that is Barry Gray and his orchestra. This is a piece of incidental music called White as Snow from Captain Scarlet. See you next time.